before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Three years ago this week, I returned from a trip to Switzerland, during which I finally had the chance to record a conversation with a man I'd been trying to coax in front of the camera for a number of years. Our conversation on a glorious snowy day in the Swiss Alps had been anything but ordinary and a long way from typical. I found myself profoundly affected, not just by our conversation, but also the way this man saw the world and the poetic simplicity with which he conveyed the framework he'd developed over his many years in the investment business. In the intervening three years, I have countless stories of emails and phone calls I've received from people who, like me, were deeply moved by this man's words. I've been stopped in the street, chased down in hotel lobbies, and accosted in restaurants by people who wanted to talk about that particular conversation, and each time I've done so with relish, sometimes for hours. The profundity of that conversation, as it turned out, resonated with others as it had with me. That conversation has been viewed almost a million times on YouTube, and if you haven't yet seen it, I would encourage you to take the time to do so. Since that day in 2018, I've had the good fortune to have spent many more hours in the company of my guest today, and after each of our conversations, I found myself with more to think about and a different perspective about not just the practice of investment, but also about life. And so I'm absolutely delighted to have another chance to share one of these conversations with you, and to welcome to the Grant Williams podcast, my friend, Tony Deaton. Tony, so good to talk to you again. It's uh, It's been, or what, a couple of days since we last spoke? Perhaps, yes. It's, it's going to feel like a lot longer to the people listening because uh, they've been waiting to hear you talk for, for some time now. Can you, can you believe it was three years ago, almost to the day that we recorded that interview we did for Real Vision? Well, don't remind me, I'm getting old. Yes, you are. I know, but, it, but it's, it's remarkable. And, you know, and that video has, um, has just had the most extraordinary response to it. I mean, there's, I think there's roughly a million people have watched it on YouTube now. And um, you know, I'm going to take the listeners back inside that. You and I, when we finished recording it, I remember you being somewhat disappointed at it. You're saying, oh, well, you know, it, was, it wasn't really you know, that interesting. There was so much more we could have talked about. And I, I remember saying to you, Tony, people are going to love this because it's just so, it's so different to the things that people normally get to listen to. And I think we were both right. I mean, we were both right in that people absolutely loved it and loved listening to you and, and were really struck by what you had to say. But I think you were right in that there's so much more to talk about. And I, I've thought for the longest time that I, I didn't think I could top that conversation. It was just such a, a pleasure to do. And it's, it's something I've listened to multiple times, as have many other people. But the more time you and I have spent talking between then and now, the more I realize that every time I get a chance to talk to you, uh, I learn so much. And so that's why I wanted to, to, to share that knowledge of yours with other people. And I feel kind of selfish hogging those conversations yeah. with you. But, so but thanks you know, for agreeing to do this. Yeah. You know, part of the reason I was somewhat disappointed, and I must admit I have not seen this video um, since that time, is because we dealt only with, um, generally with ideas. And 
virtually most of my life, ideas have been central to action. But then the question becomes, how do you translate ideas into um, into action? How do you effectively organize your affairs uh, around certain important ideas, some of which are rigid, some others are flexible? And I think we missed out on that part, and I felt that it would not have been as useful to an audience as it would have been otherwise. Well, look, I mean, that's that's something we can talk about today. You know, it's something that we can we can get into for sure. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing that. But but you know, the place I actually want to start is something that you kind of left dangling in that in that interview, and that was your plans for Edelweiss. And I know that you know in those last three years, those plans have kind of gone forward and you've run into various dead ends and you've tried to find ways around them. So for all the people that were kind of interested in what you were doing, um, perhaps we could start with with um, kind of what happened with that, uh, why and what your plans are. Well, there, there were two principal motivations behind the idea of listing the company shares, actually three. The first one was to provide our own shareholders of a liquidity mechanism outside of that that is uh, organized by the board. We're a private company. It's sort of like if you wanted to buy a stake in your local butcher. He doesn't have uh, an offering memorandum. Uh, So by listing the shares, we allow our existing shareholders to have an outside form of liquidity. Second reason is that there were many people in the world who would have loved to participate in this company, but can't and couldn't. By having the shares listed, a lot of other like-minded people, irrespective of the size of their purse, uh, could uh, buy 100 shares. And the third reason is that it would have uh, produced... uh, largely uh, tax transparency in our internal work. And so we did go through the process of seeking this listing and we consulted with law firms and uh, virtually everyone we met was very eager to do so. We were going to list in um, London as an investment trust. There was an investment bank with whom we signed an agreement to handle this matter. The board voted for it. The shareholders agreed and consented. And uh, on the 11th hour, my colleague, Tom Cleverly, said to me, Tony, this is not us. And I knew what he meant. Um, the process of being a listed company necessitates that you change the way you do things. And we would have lost our soul. We would have lost uh, the way we are, who we are. Uh, you have to do things because the regulations say that, because the law says this, because of this and that. You no longer have control of their, uh, your own affairs, your capital, your purpose. And you have to, in order to understand this grant, it, you must see the distinction between an investment business and an investment practice. Mm-hmm. A business, by its definition, is one in which The purveyor, whether it's a product or a service, gives to the customer what he wants. So whatever the customer wants, the man who is the businessman tries to give it to him. He creates a product to fill the customer's needs. 
a practice, much like a medical practice or a law practice, is in which you give the customer or the client what he needs. To the extent that this is not understood by most people in the financial world, to such an extent they have they are unable to see uh, the elements of conflicts of interest, risks, or other components that are inherent in an investment business. I'm not suggesting that everyone who has an investment business is not an honorable person. I'm just suggesting that it's a business. Yeah. And so you cannot take a practice and list it on the stock exchange. It's just impossible. So we've decided to remain private and to remain small and thus retain our relevance and our strength and our purpose. So talk a little bit about, when you when you talk about, Tom said to you, this is not us, and you, and you agree that this is not who you are. Just explain what you mean by that. Talk about the, the kind of ethos and the soul of Edelweiss, what, what it is that you set out to do, and why the problem was listing, what, what it would actually detract from. Well, um, I, I, really, I really don't think it's an appropriate venue to discuss legal and other... No, 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 I, I agree with that. Let me explain to you in a, in, a, in a form of an illustration what this means. Now, imagine that you are a bus driver. And what is important is for you to have passengers who are all going in the same destination. To the extent your passengers want to go in different places, at some point, either both you and your passengers will be unhappy. So we see an investment practice as a bus going in a particular destination, and the name of the destination is on the front of the bus in big, bright letters. So only those going in that destination ought to get on the bus. Now, those are not very many because the destination we have is not a very popular one. Now, once you start driving the bus, you are sort of the captain. So you are free to stop where the weather is bad. You're free to go around potholes. You are, you have a responsibility of keeping your bus safe and your passengers safe. Uh, ultimately, the safety of the bus and your passengers is in your hands. Now, imagine if I were the government and I came to you and I said, listen, you cannot do this, you cannot do the other, you have to do this, you have to do the other, because the bus is a public thing and anybody can come in, anybody can go out. Because of the public nature then of this bus, you have, you're no longer capable of selecting your passengers. You no longer even ask them if they want to go to the destination that is on the front of the bus. So ultimately, you have somebody else in control of the means with which you aim to achieve your ends. And this is really what happens. People list their shares for different reasons. Many of them are for the purpose of raising capital. That was not our purpose. Many of them do it for the purpose of finding a medium by which they can enrich themselves, which is very often the case, particularly in the United States. Uh, very often they do this so they can give options and other goodies to your, their managers so that they can enrich themselves. So this is not our case either. And so the motivation behind uh, an action, listing the shares, for example, must be congruent with the purpose of the overall organization. And if it isn't, something is going to break. And what breaks is really the DNA of the organization, the purpose of it. 
and this this is true. However you however you see it, uh, you want to achieve something good, but in the process you're adopting a mechanism that ultimately uh, you lose your freedom to do the right thing, and you focus on what is legal and what is compliant rather than what is right. And so that's really the distinction in the form of an illustration. But this you know, this, you know, this brings up the whole idea of public markets. You know, public markets are kind of designed around exactly that which you're seeking to avoid, right? They, they, they are they are heavily regulated, and, and although there is um, there are good intentions behind a lot of that regulation, at the point we've reached now, perhaps one could argue that that regulation has gone too far and is actually hurtful to people investing in public markets. And, and a lot of what we're seeing going on in this in this crazy world of ours today, how does standing outside that help you to make better decisions? Well, it should be self-evident, really, but largely it gives you an element of freedom and independence that you cannot otherwise have. I think that the most significant aspect of property of owning property is that ability to have freedom to employ it, to gift it, to give it away, to waste it. The freedom to do what you think is in the best interest of your property. And so without such property rights, um, life is really quite meaningless, isn't it? I mean, there are many who've suggested that the idea of property rights, in fact, are more important than life in itself. It's the foundation of action. Well, the fact is that the listed, the securities markets in the world today, um, I don't, I'm not so sure you can put them all in one box. And you can say, well, they're all like that, because in essence, they're not. Um, I have met many owners of companies that have part of their shares listed on the stock exchange who uh, act and live according to what they think is in the best interest of the company, its employees, its customers, and ultimately themselves, really. But that's in the United States, because a lot of this financial talk and it's really oftentimes centered around American experiences. This is not the case, largely. But there are some exceptional exemptions uh, to this phenomenon. So I'm not so sure you can put it all in one box. That's not a good idea. Today, um, think about this. Um, one of the things that is least talked about is we have, we have created an environment in which compliance has become an industry. Now, I'm, I'm all for the idea of protecting our reputation by doing business with people who are honorable. And certainly no one wants to engage with someone who obtained his wealth through illicit means. And throughout my life, I've always known that the honest and prudent people always wanted to know who their customer was. But today we've taken this money laundering thing to a level that it was impossible to even conceive two years ago. But one thing leads to the other, and everything has to be compliant. And if you're not compliant with this, and not come. So we've created a culture of compliance, and thousands of people were spending untold hours 
telling us how to comply. If you have a company where, where we are headquartered, we have to have a policy with respect to emails, with respect to cookies in websites, with respect to information, uh, policies of, of things that man never had the need to have. Now, on top of this now, we have this culture of global warming and ESG, which on the surface, it's admirable, but underneath it, it's a tyrannical system that more or less implies a control over private property. And to find independence in action and thought within such an environment, it's a difficult thing. You know, freedom has a cost. Freedom is not free. And the threats to freedom have changed from period to period. Today, the threat to freedom is not the Nazis. It's not even the Russians or the Chinese. The threats to freedom are from within. And I feel that a proper investment practice, whether it is in the, for the benefit of oneself or for the benefit of others, must have intellectual independence and operating independence. Without those two things, you end up doing the kinds of things that you are expected. And there are things that sell rather than the things that are necessary in view of the purpose or the objective to which you're going. Perhaps it's nuanced and perhaps it's insignificant to most people, but to us, they have substantial importance. Well, I don't think it's that difficult. I don't think it's that nuanced. I guess the question is how you maintain that in today's world. I know because we've spoken, but I think it'd be interesting for people to hear how you maintain that because the way you do it kind of flies in the face of what most investment businesses, and I choose that word carefully, choose to do. Uh, you cho- you, uh, you're, you're speaking with respect to the investment practice or the inspect to the... Well, and, and that's why I chose the words carefully. I, you, you as an investment practice have just laid out the goals you look to achieve. But the question is how you manage to stay on that path in a world where the vast majority of people around you are going completely the other way and are investment businesses and therefore direct their methods of operating towards that end. Well, I will answer the question by perhaps using also an illustration. One of the things that distinguishes the financial world from everything else in life is the desire of financial participants, intermediaries uh, of all sorts, from bankers to investment advisors and fund managers and everyone who is involved in it, to provide something of service to just about anybody with money in their pocket. Right. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to walk into a Porsche garage, dealership they call them in America, and say, I would like to buy a Fiat truck. In fact, I would like to buy 500 of them. They're not going to sit there and say to themselves, how do we get to sell Fiat trucks to this chap? That's not their business. If you walk into a butcher and you say, I'm building a hotel and I need to buy 300 beds and 300 televisions and so many thousand sets of towels, that's business. But that butcher has absolutely no interest, ability, etc., to fulfilling your needs. Everyone has a niche. Everyone has a purpose. So in the financial world, no matter what you want to do, so long as you have money in your pocket, everybody's going to take to take your business. So as a way of the illustration, therefore, one of the ways you, you can maintain your 
operating and intellectual freedom is by serving people who you consider to be like-minded. It's like you are driving the bus, say, from here to Milano. If somebody wants to go to Paris, they should be on another bus. There's no reason to be on your bus. So you as a driver have a responsibility of making sure that all your passengers are going to the same destination. And then you can do the right thing. You can sleep well at night, function with, and do your work. I mean, you have no distractions. And I think that there's no other endeavor outside the world of finance where distractions are such an extraordinary impact on decision-making and on, on general action. The financial world is confused in, on its own, not because it has to be, but because it's ultimately aimless and purposeless in that all it is seeking for is to make money. Right. A butcher wants to provide the best meat for his customers or, or fish or whatever he sells, and a doctor, a gastroenterologist looks at your uh, stomach, whereas a heart uh, doctor looks at your heart. They don't, the two don't try to imitate each other or compete with each other. That's how you find this element of peace, I think, by knowing what it is that you do, by knowing where you're going, by knowing the means you will get there and having the kinds of people around you that are going in the same destination. So, so what, what do you make of this passive investment phenomenon? Obviously, it's not such a, 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 a big deal in Europe where you are, but you must be observing this. What, what, what are your thoughts on passive investing? Oh, this is quite big here. In fact, uh, I think I, I know of one public pension fund, I will not name the country, that replaced all of its managers with uh, Vanguard and BlackRock and that sort of thing. Oh, really? I hadn't seen that. Yeah. I, I, th I think that is a natural consequence of man's interest in the idea of wealth without work, and notion that has befuddled him since the beginning of time. And so you own a security for the purpose of it going up. There's no other reason of owning X or Y. So to the extent that it's going up in a more uh, structured way, so it goes up with everything else, it goes down with everything else, you really don't have to think very much. So a man has a, a lot of trouble generally thinking for himself. A, thinking of what's what, thinking of what is appropriate, suitable to him, seeking to avoid the kind of risks that he should not be taking. And so by being part of the whole or something that promises him riches without effort, he can assuage himself with the illusion that he is doing something important. And for a while, it seems that he may be doing well. But he's doing well only in money terms, not in terms of wealth that is in his control, wealth that he commands. So I'm, I'm not really keen on these arbitrary indices because virtually every one of them is by its very nature arbitrary. If you were, I use the example again, if you were a butcher and you lived here in my little town and you had a wonderful business that was perhaps passed on by your father and you had the respect and admiration of your customers, I doubt it you would ever be concerned with the butcher index 
say in Switzerland or in Central Europe or worldwide, you would never measure yourself to what other butchers are doing. And if I mention it to you, you will probably laugh because it's just completely not reasonable. And yet what we do today, we measure our work with that of others, irrespective of the fact that others may be going in a completely different direction, have different ideas of what's right and wrong, have different, they, they have a different sense of what is the kind of risks they should be taking and the ones they should be avoiding. And as I said to you, I mean, uh, and you and I discussed this at some length at some point in time recently, is that this is not new. It's just in, it's just technology has found ways to bring this into into in the forefront. I think man throughout time really has always been seeking to find ways where he can actually profit without having to work. Yeah. And for a while, these things work. But ultimately, they fail. I mean, I don't know if I answered your question, but I'm being a bit philosophical. But that's no, 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 no that, that's absolutely fine. But I'll never forget sitting in the audience in New York watching you speak at Jim Grant's 35th um, anniversary conference a couple of years ago. And you gave a wonderful speech, which people will be able to find, I think it's out there on the internet somewhere. I think you, you included it in an Edelweiss journal shortly afterwards. But at the end of that speech, you know, I, I was sitting there with our mutual friend, Simon Mikhailovich, and, and you could feel in the room that it was evenly split. Half the room were listening intently, thinking, A, who the hell is this guy? And B, why the hell have I not heard of him before? And C, as you have, it of, have a habit of doing, that the way you, you, you got your points across was like a cool drink of water for, for half of that audience. And the other half were thinking, the hell is this all about? What is this guy talking about? It didn't make any sense to them. And I'll never forget the very first question. At the end of your speech, the gentleman put his hand up and he said to you, he said, Tony, you live in Switzerland. What's your view on the Swiss franc? And you looked at him with a very puzzled face and you said, I don't care about the Swiss franc. I don't know what the Swiss franc is. I couldn't tell you. I, I have no interest in such things. And again, that room was split in two. There were half the room that you felt almost wanted to get up and applaud you and the other half that just thought, how can you not care about the Swiss franc? This is a very long way around to get into a question, but I wanted to tell that story because it's quite illustrative of, of where I want to go with this. Are you really surprised? About which part of it? I'm surprised that there were, there were differences in thought as to the meaning of anything. I, I think that it's generally true that for different people, any one thing means something different. And I, I'm, I'm, I, if, if everyone had agreed with me, I would have thought perhaps I was wrong. No, no, I, it's, it's, you're right. It's not, it's not that all right, actually, if everyone agrees with you, perhaps you're right. But um, my point here is, is everybody in the business and everybody that's looking after their own money spends so much time and energy focused on economics, focused on uh, forecasting, and there is so much noise around both economics, macroeconomics, forecasting. Um, so what what role does that play? The, the, the analysis that you do and the work you do, how much credence do you give this stuff? How much attention do you pay to it? And, and is any of it really important in what you do? Well, um, some things are important. Um, I hate to speak with illustrations, but sometimes there are, the best way to 
you paint them beautifully. So carry on. To um, outline an idea. And, um, you know, this financial statistics and employment and various other things and foreign exchange rates and um, swap rates and things like this. There, um, there are many people indeed who are consumed by these matters in the financial world. I think the average person with savings um, doesn't really have the tools with which, thank God, with which to confuse himself over these matters. And clearly there are some aspects of this information that has some value. And the value that it has is the same value that the radar screen has to a ship captain. If you're sitting on the deck of a ship going some destination, the radar screen tells you a great deal about rocks that may be in front of you, or bad weather that may be in front of you, or something, another ship in the middle of the night. So it helps you perhaps avoid obstacles, avoid bad weather, but it doesn't tell you where to go. <laughs> it doesn't tell you what your destination ought to be. And so I think that, first of all, second thing is that a lot of these statistics and a lot of this information is subject to the um, confusion and distortions and really compound distortions that have come from the destruction of money in itself. And so today you have a GDP, for example, which at one time may have meant something, but today it means very little because even, even if it measures the monetary value of goods and services, which actually does not actually measure the goods and services, but the money, uh, goods and services, it does not tell you about the wasted resources. It does not tell you about uneconomic endeavors that would not have taken place were it not for interest rates being where they are. It measures activity, but it doesn't mes measure the value of such activity in a real, honest, enduring sense. So the best thing to do is avoid a great deal of that. But I cannot say that you completely dismiss the events that take place around you. I just don't trust statistics to start with. I don't trust U.S. statistics anymore than I trust Azerbaijani statistics. I'm not sure there's much difference. And as a result, you, take, you can take a lot of things with a grain of salt because, frankly, you cannot use it for forecasting. Forecasting is not possible to do. We don't know. We don't know how people are going to act. So, therefore, we must act with a sense that is completely divorced from the financial phenomena that describe human, act human activity or business activity. This is why, perhaps... Perhaps, and I don't know, I don't really, I cannot really delve into this, what you have called a, I use an American word, a disconnect, perhaps, uh, between the financial aspect of things and the real economy. Um, I'm not so sure this has happened before. There used to be a time, if you go back, even in American financial history, maybe 50, 60 years ago, where if a newspaper man wanted to know what was happening in the economy, he talked to the president of an industrial company, not an economist working for a, for a brokerage firm. 
So industry led and finance followed. Today, finance leads and industry has become really actually quite small. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that there's value in some of this, um, some of this activity within the context of giving you clues. But then you have to think for yourself, much like the way you pick shoes or you pick uh, things that you wish to buy and you choose between what television or other things that you acquire in your life. And the same way you use clues as to things to chart your own course. So I'm not so sure this illustration is appropriate, but that's the first thing that came to mind. No, no, it, no, it, no it does answer, it answer my question. But this kind of leads me on to somewhere I wanted to go, which we didn't touch on when we had our last conversation, and that is to focus on the hows of this. We've, we've spoken at length about the whys and the whats, but the hows are slightly different. And, and what I'd love to do is kind of give people a glimpse into your process because it, it in, in our interview, previous interview, it came across as, wholly different to that which other practitioners follow, but without really much joining in the dots. So for example, if I was to bring you a great idea I had about a, a specific company, let's say I found a, um, I don't know, let's say I found a building materials company in Germany, which I thought was a fantastically suitable investment for you. How would you start to pick that apart? Where do you go to, to try and work out what a suitable investment is and why? Well, this actually does happen often. Oh, I'm uh, sure. I'm sure. Because, you know, there's an old saying, it says to find um, good ideas, you have to look at a lot of ideas. And um, so over the course of many years, you have looked at a whole lot of things. You have, uh, there's perhaps there are a few things that I haven't looked at. I'm sure there are more than I know, but, but but if someone you respect and say Grant Williams came to me, he says, I, I'm 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 certain there's this uh, building supply company in Germany that possesses merit, investment merit. Then I would I would perhaps take it a bit more seriously. But still it would I would probably think of it in, in the context of I would look at it the same way as if you were to say, Tony, there's a building materials company in Germany that the owner wants to sell and he is uh, motivated to sell. Would you be interested in you and I going to look at it? Clearly, if that were the case, the first thing we would do would not be to look at their stock price, right? Right. There are some different people do it different way, but I feel that in order to make wise decisions to yourself and to those passengers on your bus, you must have a process by which there's some rigidness, not that it's always the same way, but there's a certain rigidness to the approach in order to avoid error. So the first thing that I would ask myself is, without really looking into this business, I would say to myself, do I know the building supply business? Have I ever come across it before? Do I know the economics of it? I would ask myself who buys those kind of products. I would ask myself what is the enduring nature of such business. I would ask myself what could go wrong in that business. What are they compared? Not this particular one, but generally speaking, the building supply business. I'd want to yeah. have an understanding. Do I have an understanding of what can go wrong? 
very little attention is often placed on risk factors because risk is the most difficult thing to understand. You can do a DCF analysis and figure out what your prospective gains may be over the next five years. But how do you know how to identify elements of risks, both financial, quantifiable, plus the unseen and unquantifiable aspect? And so if, if you were a pharmaceutical company, I'd say, I, I don't have the first clue about how pharmaceutical companies work, so I would dismiss it. But a building supply business is easier to understand. So the second thing I would ask myself is that, do I want to be in the building supply business? There are many businesses that I I understand, but I wouldn't want to be in it. I will right. give you an example, the trucking business, you know, uh, you know, the actual transport of goods. It's a fine business. Perhaps it's been magnificent to many people, but it's not a business I find attractive because the costs are fixed. The revenues are subject to substantial, uh, you, know, uh, you know, competitive pressures. Uh, they have liabilities in trucks and people. Uh, they don't add much of any value to any one thing. They, they, there's no economies of scale. There's no... It's a business that in order to become successful long-term, you have to have size. You're competing with people far larger than you. So I like the business very much, but I don't want to be part of it. So if I understand the business and I like the business, then I would look at what you suggested to me and I would look at who owns it and ask myself, do I want to be partners with these people? Do I like these people? Imagine you and I were to buy the entire company. We ask ourselves, would we keep these people running? And that's easy to know. You can look at five, 10 years of annual accounts. You don't have to know much about the business. Five, 10 years and read the notes and you can give, you can get clues as to the motivation of the people who own the business, who run the business. You can see if they're motivated by growth for the sake of growth, which is often the case. You can see if they're motivated by adapting to changes and making themselves more and more useful to their customers. You can see whether or not they're responsive to changes that are taking place in the world from a technological perspective or others. You can see their commitment to their employees, to their customers, to their community. You don't have to do ESG, right? So you want to get a qualitative understanding of those factors that are by necessity extremely important in the long-term survival of the business, and that's the people factors. So you'd be amazed what you can get by reading the notes of financial accounts over a course of five years, of the last five, 10 years. Because those accounts give clues as to the motivation, the character, and the purpose of such a company. And so having said all that and having finished all that, then I would look at the price of the security. And I would say to myself, is this price suitable or or appropriate or reasonable or, you know, I mean, I think all of these formulas for estimating financial value, whether it's earnings or cash flow or God forbid EBITDA or anything else, they all have a role to play. And I'm not so sure that there is a particular, any one of them 
that I would outline because in, in different sectors, in different economic activities, you can measure your results differently or we use different ratios or different. And so having established its business value, I would try to come up with an understanding of what is the securities value because those two things are completely different. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes what happens is that the price of a security reflects what happened in the last year or two or six months or sometimes a month. And people in the public markets extrapolate this forward. And of course, everything that is going up will continue going up and everything that's going down will continue going down. And of course, prices of securities are subject to emotional inputs. Uh, They're subject to so many factors that have nothing to do with what you're looking at. And so therefore, the approach that I would take will be in the beginning more appropriate to what I think will be suitable for me rather than to merely establish a price. Because frankly, the fact that something has financial value to someone, that does not make it valuable to me. Now, I must tell you that I think that the investment process must employ a certain element of entrepreneurship in the sense that from time to time, life brings you situations and possibilities where there is a discrepancy, there's a visual, there's an, uh, there's a, there's an evident discrepancy between the substance and the value that you compute something as versus the price in which it sells in the public markets. And in such cases, there's nothing wrong with employing this or participating in something, knowing that you merely acquired it for a short-term period. It's not a speculation as much as it is what is considered to be in the business a value approach. I don't know what those things mean anymore because they right. value investing does not. It, it's a very esoteric thing that is difficult to define actually in today's world. But most of the time, uh, I'll give you another illustration and I apologize for that. Imagine you are a collector of fine art. Not every piece of art is suitable for you. You're only collecting certain things that you think they're valuable to the whole. Is it not true? You yeah. don't buy, you don't buy 10% impressionist and 5% neo-modern and, you know, et cetera. You, that's not how you make an investment collection. It takes a lifetime to put together an investment collection. And you know all about every single thing you have. And you acquire this investment collection for the value it possesses rather than the financial value you would otherwise obtain by selling it. I know a number of collectors of art. None of them is interested in selling it. Now, they do know what it's worth, perhaps. Not quite exactly. But they have an idea that it's worth more than they paid for it. Because, you know, I'm digressing here. The price of something is important only twice the time you buy it and the time you sell it. In between, the price of anything means absolutely nothing. Now, such a collector, he's searching to find pieces that fit the overall collection purposefully. He's not interested in acquiring a collection because of diversification. 
art collectors do not know the word diversification. It's foreign to them. So now, imagine this art collector were to become a dealer or a gallery owner were to go to him. He says, you know, we have a customer who, for whatever reasons, a divorce, an impoverishment, whatever kind, they have this piece of art and they want to sell it. They want to sell it tomorrow. They need money. And this art does not belong in this collection. And let's say I'm the art collector and I know this art is maybe worth $100,000 for argument's sake. And this guy is interested in selling it for 15 or 20. It doesn't belong in my collection, but having made absolutely certain of the difference between what he is willing to take from me and what I think this thing is worth in a public marketplace at some point, I will buy it. I will not make it part of my collection, but I'm going to take advantage of this little opportunity. Now, these such opportunities don't come every day, and you don't look for them, but occasionally life brings them to you. And so I think that it's important not to be rigid in your approach to the investment practice, but it's also important to be entrepreneurial. But at the same time, it's important to be cognizant of what it is is important in your collection and what fits and why. So if you came to me and said, you know, Tony, uh, there's uh, shares of such and such a bank are selling at 1% of their book value, They've never been cheaper, and this is this, and this is that, and this is the other, and it's a tremendous bargain. I will turn you down. I don't even want to know the name of the bank. I don't want to know the ticker. I don't want to look at anything. It's just that I just don't invest in banks. Right. And the principal reason is I don't understand their account. You can read the account, the annual accounts of a bank all day long to you blue in the face. You really don't know what's happened. So for that alone... I'm just unwilling to look at these things. So if you are interested only in money making, then I would look at everything, wouldn't I? Yeah. I mean, you know a lot of people in the financial world. Virtually most people uh, will look at anything that has the promise of making the money. Is it not true? Yeah, it's absolutely true. Well, you know, the fact is that at some point, you already are rich. The, the making of money is, is not the purpose for which you're holding wealth. Therefore, making money is not really, I mean, do you know any professional who is in this profession to make money? Do you know a cardiologist whose ultimate objective is to become a rich cardiologist? Well, I'm sure there's maybe one or two. Do you know a violinist or a teacher or anyone else? So I'm, I'm just suggesting is that it's the motivation that matters behind the selection or behind the process. And once you know what the purpose is and the motivation is, then everything becomes clear and you can dismiss a whole lot of things right off the bat. What you said there brings me to another topic I want to talk to you about. When you talked about you know, there's a point where you don't need to get rich anymore. People have a wealth level that is either something that makes them comfortable or it's it, it achieves objectives they set earlier in their lives. And for some people, it may not have been a lot of money. And for some people, it may be an awful lot of money. But how do you go about adjusting the mindset from trying to accumulate wealth to trying to preserve and protect wealth? Because they're two completely different things, right? Well, it is. It is. But, you know, I mean, this is part of the time in which we live. You know, there was a time 
in um, 200 years ago or so at the um, at another era where a person was wealthy only on account of his income, mm-hmm. not his assets. So if your father passed to you a farm or a, a, a manor or some family business from one generation to the other, you couldn't very well sell it. You didn't know what it was worth. But it was the income stream generated from that or other things that made one wealthy or not. What has happened in our modern financial and and people, the people's motivation was not wealth acquisition. And no one becomes a teacher, perhaps one of the most important professions in our world uh, for the purpose of becoming rich. No one teaches in a university for the purpose of becoming wealthy. So if all of us wanted to become rich tomorrow, uh, where would we go for a doctor or who would teach our children? Who would drive the bus? Who would play the violin? And so, so what happened is that wealth was the acquisition of wealth was done through accumulation. And the accumulation of savings, that means spending less than what you earn. If you spend less than what you earn, you save the difference. That was the original definition, by the way, of savings. The excess of income over expenditure. If you save that and invest it wisely, it becomes a little larger, and then you add to it more, and then you add to it more. Eventually, you pass it on to your children who add to it more. And eventually, after four, five, six generations, you have accumulated wealth. And wealth cannot be accumulated by a very short capital gains in one generation. I'll give you as an example places where you've had a substantial discovery of oil or minerals, and all of a sudden they have a greater wealth, but the country is poor. And they will never really make anything of it because they don't have the culture of a society whose wealth is based on accumulation. The compounding and the accumulation of wealth is what creates really compounding and accumulation of capital makes what makes wealth. Now, to the extent, therefore, that you can accumulate wealth by playing in the financial markets, and particularly at times when asset prices are rising for reasons that you don't even understand, uh, then you see there's no reason for anyone to... What's, what's the purpose of going to school to become a medical doctor and spending 20 years of your life preparing for it? If you can take whatever loan you get from the government in America, that is, and invest it in Bitcoin or something else that's going up and become rich without having to work. So modern society with, uh, you know, particularly really since the end of the Second War, uh, financial aspects of wealth accumulation have overwhelmed the equation by which people pursue this. And so you have people who otherwise they would never been able to accumulate anything. All of a sudden they think they can accumulate money. But, but by accumulating money, they're not accumulating wealth. They think it's wealth, but it isn't. So I think that if your purpose is to perhaps consume what you've earned, that's one thing. But if you, if you acquired something by honest means, either by work or by inheritance, or the other ways are dishonest, like stealing it or working for the government, <laughs> then you have a responsibility perhaps to pass it on to another generation. So that the means by which to do that must be become part of the ethos of the new generation. 
And so you can have, I don't know, in dollars, $200,000, and think of yourself as being wealthy. There's really nothing wrong with that because you can live within the means that this $200,000 can provide you. And I know people who are worth nine figures, 10 figures, and they think of themselves as poor. And they act as if they were poor. And they engage in activities that only poor people would. And I know others who have a whole lot less, and a lot of people in between, of course. There's, there's no, the size of your purse or the size of your wherewithal has absolutely nothing to do with your ability to see its significance, both in time and over uh, in the long course of things. And so I think that there used to be uh, there used to be a definition that you're wealthy if you can live within the context of the income generated by your assets. And today, of course, this has been turned upside down because there's no income generated. Oftentimes, when you see income generated, it's probably not real. And so, um, I think that what I'm trying to kind of share with you is that the impact of the financial economy onto the habits of people, their habits in saving, their habits in work, their habits in purpose, uh, the habits in consumption, um, rather than the definition in and of itself. So how has this phenomenon of the withdrawal of income affected not just your way of thinking, but the companies uh, in which you've invested? Because it must have had a significant effect on, on both of those. Perhaps you could ask me again, because I'm. those are three or four different questions built into one. <laughs> okay, let me, try, let me try that again. How has, uh, let me see if I can stop laughing. How has this removal of the ability to generate income affected both the way you think about the companies you invest in and also affected the way the companies that you have invested in conduct their affairs? Well, let's start with the second part because this is perhaps more substantive in, in the view of things. Entrepreneurs, business owners, generally act differently from business managers or investment tourists. The principal and most important consideration an entrepreneur or business owner gives is not to go out of business. You would think, yeah. Recently, many people who have put their life savings in hotels, restaurants, and other, say, tourist activities, etc., and seen their revenue disappear, They've learned an incredibly important lesson in the fact that life sometimes brings you situations that are completely uh, impossible to visualize or expect and that bring you on the brink of complete bankruptcy or failure. But the principal objective they have is to stay in business. Now, one of the ways they do that and I'm, I think this varies from business to business, is to remain relevant to the customer. They do this with adapting to changes that are taking place in the world. They're doing this with innovating. They're doing this with hiring and keeping, not just hiring, and keeping the best people they can. 
They're doing it by a number of different ways, depending on the nature of the work. Perhaps selling products in other places around the world. And I think that what happens is that once they generate income, cash, whatever you want to call it, in excess of what they need, they end up having to decide, how do we apply this? Do we buy a new machinery to increase our production? Do we replace the existing machinery to improve our productivity? Do we hire more people? Do we buy more trucks? Do we hire more salespeople? Do we put keep more money in the bank? Or do we give it back to our shareholders, owners, as a dividend? This is not a simple thing. And it depends on a whole lot of things. It depends on a lot of factors. Generally, a business owner, minority or not, must receive a portion of the earnings of a company as a dividend. I generally avoid, completely as a matter of practice, companies that do not pay a dividend. The nature of the dividend depends on a number of factors. And yes, I will pay a tax on the dividend. And I would rather they didn't buy back their shares. There's times when buying back their shares makes sense, but not very often. Certainly most of the times you see companies buying back their shares, they're doing it for the wrong reason, for the wrong motivation, and with borrowed money. But how do they allocate this capital that you have? You allocate it in a way that will never diminish the integrity of the company, will never make it more fragile, will add to its capacity, to its know-how, it will allow it to remain relevant. And sometimes when the earnings are less, you do something less. But you never deploy your capital in a way to make the company fragile. So you live with what you earn. And sometimes you live on a little bit less. And I think that it's important to distinguish that cycle in a business cycle where certain companies have for five years of substantial profits and growth, followed by a number of years of perhaps consolidation and not necessarily the same rate of growth. Because life doesn't come in nice little steps of 10% a year or whatever percent a year. It comes in unequal periods of time. So the good earnings of one year have to be reserved for something less the following year and so on and so forth. However, and that's normal in a business cycle. However, if you and I as owners of savings are faced a situation where the genuine income streams generated through financial investments, whether it's in fixed income securities or well, anything else, have become negligible. Cash in the bank earns zero. Oftentimes you have to pay in the bank to keep your money there. And then you have to ask yourself, what are the contributing factors to this? Is this a temporary phenomenon or is it a permanent phenomenon? Or is it something to last for an unknown period of time? You have to know this. And once you know this, you make the kind of adjustments in your life according to your purpose. If your purpose is to eat what you have and you are, say, 65 years old and you expect to live another, say, 20 years, and you have enough to consume without really depending on anything else and you have no other purpose, then you can make no change in your life. But if you are a younger, or if you have obligations, or if your purpose for holding these savings is to pass it on to another generation, then you must make those adjustments 
that will allow the the nature of this wealth that you possess to retain its significance. And so I'm I'm not sure there is a one rule or two that fit all, but I think within the investment company now, within our investment practice, the fact is that I, 35 years ago when I began, we had inflation, price inflation that is, yep. had, um, but we had real yields. Um, you could take the income stream from fixed income instruments, governments, corporates, uh, in the U.S., you have municipal bonds and other such things, and receive income streams from it that you can compound or you can acquire other things with, etc. Uh, I remember owning common stocks that had dividend yields of 8%, 9%, and they earned it. Today, that has disappeared completely. I mean, completely. You have no real income generation. Today, the focus is on asset price increases, those asset price increases have come generally out of monetary policies and their variants. Perhaps that's not an important point to go into, but you have to ask yourself, what are, are we that much smarter than our ancestors? Have we found a new way of creating wealth that they didn't know? And so we see prices going up. When prices going up, no one asks, why are they going up? Uh, in the inverse circumstance, everyone asks, well, why are they going down? But anyway, I feel that within an investment practice, you have, in, in having a lack of genuine income, you have to adjust your activities in such a way so as to, on one hand, generate whatever income can be generated within the context of what is possible, right, prudent. But barring that, you have to extend your time preference forward because there are periods of time in which the generation of income becomes difficult. So that means you have to live within the means that you already have and hope and pray that in the years to come, whether it's a year from now or 50 years from now, circumstances will change that will allow you to add to your wherewithal in a way that is more genuine and more appropriate. So I know I haven't answered your question, but that's as best as I can do. Okay. <laughs> so, but, you've, but you've raised several others. You know, it, it seems uh, in recent years that to the point you just made, many investors have taken asset price gains as income and have extrapolated them forward. People have seen the markets go up, you know, ten percent a year based on enormous injections of liquidity, and they've assumed that this is just the way this works, and, and I can spend those gains as income. And this kind of brings me on to the broader subject of risks, which um, is not something we spoke about much in, in our first conversation. So I want to talk to you about risk, both kind of external risk, and you, and you touched on it earlier on. How do you think about risk within the context of what you do? How do you frame it? And what are the key risks that, with a portfolio like yours, you're, you're forced to focus on? Well, on one hand, I think the answer is, I can give you a very simple answer. But the, in, in reality, the, it's, a, it's a complex issue. 
because um, it's not unlike you and I buying insurance for different things uh, in the sense that we assess what can go wrong and we buy both a policy and a size of a policy appropriate to the risk that we identify as we understand it and relative to its magnitude. I think the idea, well, first of all, the idea of price volatility, I don't think of it as risk because it just isn't. Financial people think of it as risk. And in fact, there are two people who think of volatility as a risk, the financial people and the completely ignorant people. Uh, business owners don't think of volatility as being a risk. In fact, they think of it as being generally an opportunity. There are things that can go wrong with respect to things that are systematic. Someone going out of business. A certain market for certain things disappears. We make bad decisions. We take on too much debt or someone takes too much debt or somebody makes their wrong acquisition for the wrong reason. Lots of things can go wrong in a systematic sort of way. So you try to avoid that. But then there's another category which is generally thought of as unsystematic, which is something that conceivably completely out of your control. Fraud, for example, is a potential risk that you take. Now, how do you avoid fraud? You certainly don't avoid it by looking at the fact whether or not their accounts have been audited by a big accounting firm. All the frauds I know had audited accounts. How do you detect malfeasance? How do you know that the revenue that comes to a firm or its profits are really genuine and not a result of a government policy that favors one over another or some regulation that allows them to remain relevant where in fact their business is really has no economic value outside the context of some investment regulation or war. You know, war is very profitable business for a lot of people. And, and so you, you see the hidden externalities of the things that, not only the things that can go wrong, but the foundation of the substance that is in place. And so I'm not so sure there is um, a word risk to define anything, but I think there are many, many different risks in life. And then ultimately there is another risk, which is perhaps the most, um, the most deadly of all. And that is the risk that we don't have all the information we need. We all, even the smartest people I know, who work with partial knowledge, what's called in economics, we are called upon to make decisions not knowing really all the facts. And oftentimes knowing their facts, the facts, we're unable to understand their significance. We're unable to come to judgment about the impact of such facts on things. I mean, look, most people would think themselves as healthy, but oftentimes health for most people in reality is defined as the absence of pain. But the fact that someone is not in pain does not mean that he is healthy. There may be something that is growing of which he does not know, which does not result in pain for the current 
time, but the body may be ill. And by consequence of that, most people think that if they're ill and they have a lot of pain, the moment they can take some medicine, they are happy with the fact that pain has ameliorated and they're hopeful for the future, even though the disease has not been treated. So they see events in their life, events in companies, various things that happen in the context of um, ameliorating them as if you were to ameliorate pain. I, I think it's not easy for many people, certainly many do, but most people, to ask questions about the real nature of illness. What is the illness involved? They see events as uh, the ultimate end and not as symptoms to a larger problem. And I think that when you look at a society or you look at a business or you look at a relationship or you look at anything, you must see a problem that the visible problem is oftentimes not the problem itself, but a symptom to a larger one. And so I think it's necessary not just merely to have information or even not necessary to merely have understanding. We must really think of that we must come to judgment about the impact that something has on the whole and the potential consequences in this case in terms of risk to the whole. The understanding of risk can never be mechanical, could never be mechanical, any more than it can be so in, 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 in life in general or in, in, in medicine or in any other complex system. So, so I, I try to, you know, I mean, a lot of what is being published today in financial markets about risks is not is subject to mechanical computations, uh, arithmetic computations, that perhaps compare something with something else uh, without giving credence to the possibility that there are underlying risks in an organism, within a company, within a family, within a society, within a business endeavor, within an industry that underlie this, the things that become visible. And, and I think it's important for us to think as an owner of a business would think about what can go wrong. And without that, uh, even if we can do it only partially, we can make better judgments. And as a result of that, we can sleep better at night. Because for me, sleeping well at night has a larger significance than someone else, perhaps. I, again, I don't know if I answer your question. Well, let's, let's, let's focus a little bit on this, because obviously we've had the perfect example of this in 2020 with the arrival of uh, COVID, which was absolutely not unforecastable. Uh, we've had these pandemics before, but it constituted both a major risk to businesses, to livelihoods, to households, to governments, to the entire structure of the global economy. And it also represented extreme volatility uh, in both directions as, as we went through kind of this time, February, March last year. So how did you think about the risk of the volatility, the opportunities presented by 
COVID, the threats to your portfolio? How did you manage that process? I'm I'm not sure I gave it as much thought as you suggest. No, which 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 is which is an answer, right? And I'm interested to know why. I uh, I still see people going to the supermarket and buying food, and I uh, still see Amazon delivering goods, and I'm sure. Neither the food nor the stuff being delivered by Amazon is made by people who are working from home on a laptop. Somebody has to make those goods. And so long as man exists, he will need certain goods for his survival. So events like this COVID matter from time to time come in society. Sometimes they last a brief period of time. Sometimes they last a year or two. Sometimes they last a little longer, but eventually they go. I think of the people in Afghanistan who have been being bombed continuously for the last 30 years, or maybe even longer. But generally, these periods leave. They, They come and go. What is problematic within this setting is that, A, to to own something that is ill prepared to face disaster. Companies, people, families who have no reserves. Companies who rely on just-in-minute inventory and they cannot source goods because airplanes don't fly or whatever. Uh, So the resilience of an individual to the disease can be similarly being seen the resilience of an organization to a problem. I mean, clearly some people are going to be hurt. Some people go out of business. Some people will be hurt temporarily. And there are others perhaps who actually will benefit from this period. Think of all the people who make masks, for example. I don't know, whatever it is they do. But the fact is that these periods are transitory. And they do come from time to time as a result both of man-made causes or natural causes. So the issue is that I I was absolutely certain that um, none of the participations we hold would go out of business, for example, for argument's sake. One or two of them will be substantially hurt uh, by virtue of a complete disaster with respect to revenues. Uh, we had one. Uh, there are others who will benefit and there are others who will be hurt temporarily, and so forth. I think that in March, the reaction on the markets gave us an opportunity to acquire some things we always wanted to have, but uh, they were pricey. But we made a small acquisitions, thinking, not knowing exactly how long this thing will last and what intensity will take and thinking that we can add to it in time to come. Well, this was not to be, of course, because shortly thereafter, everything took off again. So we found ourselves with substantial capital gains on tiny itty bitty initial positions and things, not knowing what to do with these bits. Now, clearly, in hindsight, of course, we could have been more, uh, you know, we could have been uh, acquired larger stakes. But this, you can always say this in hindsight. Uh, when confronted with a whole series of unknowns, um, it's very difficult 
particularly the capital that we have that belongs to people, you know, for many of our shareholders, we, we are their only investment. In fact, for most of them, or a very large part of their investment. And so you have to be respectful of the nature of the capital for which you're responsible. So um, the idea of, have, of doing something different, you know, it just doesn't come. You know, uh, someone asked me recently, what do you do now? How do you act now? Well, I act the same way I've acted for the last, I don't know, all these years. I, I haven't changed anything. You know, we, it's not uh, the purpose uh, that you have and the motivation that it, it, it doesn't really change. Now, Grant, I must tell you that one of the things that I, I in preparation for this conversation we have, I, I went back some years ago and I read some things from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, just to refresh my memory. And I, I just realized that in different times and for different reasons, if you were to look at the nature of our holdings, you would come to completely different uh, completely different descriptions of it. There was a time, for example, in the early 1990s that, you know, we had a fairly large concentration in bonds. Uh, we even had some, what they call in America, technology shares, which in America that really revolves around Amazon and Google and Uber technologies or whatever they have there. Then later on, we had a lot of cash. In 1999, at the end of 99, we ended up the year with 93% of assets in cash. <laughs> there, afterwards, we became a natural resources company. We owned copper and gold and oil and a lot of other such things. Coal. And so if you looked at us from 1999, end of 99 to 2003 or 4, you'd think we're a natural resources fund. We were not. And so there are periods of time, and they, I don't know what they are. Sometimes they are four, five years. Sometimes they're 10 or 20, where you adapt yourself to the circumstances you face, all, all the while never losing sight of the purpose of your capital, the means with which you want to achieve your ends. It's the same thing, I will use the first analogy I gave you. You're driving a bus from here to Milano. Although your job is to go from here to Milano, you can go through the motorways, or you can take the little roads. You can go over the mountain passes, or you can go under the tunnels. Oftentimes, the weather is bad. You can stop on the side of the road and wait for an hour or two for the storm to pass. You're not in competition with someone else who is going in the same route. And uh, to the extent you see it as a competition, then you're putting your passenger's life or the, the bus's owner's property at risk. And so uh, you adapt yourself to the circumstances you find in life, but all the while you're still going to Milano. The difference is with someone who is driving a bus to Milano and the passengers look at a lot of buses that are going to say, Monaco. And they say, wow, I mean, these people are going, they're having more fun. Let's go there. 
And some of the passengers want to go somewhere else. And so what you do is you stop the bus and you say, you get out. This is very simple because I'm going to Milano. And somewhere along the route, someone stops, says, I'm going to Milano too. Can I jump aboard? And yes, you come aboard. And so I'm, I, I can answer your question truthfully. I mean, this is a difficult time for a lot of people. But most of the difficulty has not come from COVID. It has come from the reaction to this matter. Right. You know that, and I'm sure you have talked about it with many others. We're living through a very difficult time. But in and of itself, this virus, whatever it is, I think of it as a form of flu, uh, comparable to another variant of the common flu, perhaps. And I'm not alone in thinking so. Anyway, bad as it is, or good as it is, or mild, or whatever it is, it's a temporary period, but has tended to produce dislocations. What the important thing to consider is the the how could we have seen the potential dislocations in terms of fragility to start with? And the fact is that it doesn't change our purpose. It doesn't change our motivation. It just merely makes certain adjustments. And so some of the investments we have, business owners decided to reduce the amount of dividend. A, because they wanted to strengthen their own balance sheet. Or sometimes because they, they saw the unknown elements uh, in place, and they felt that this would, the prudent thing to do is reduce it, sometimes even eliminate it temporarily. It hasn't changed their business. It hasn't changed their focus. It hasn't changed the relevance that they have in the in industry or in the markets. And whether it's next month or six months from now or next year or five years from now, they'll be back and they'll be as strong as they once were. And I, I think that we're making too much of the impact of this because of the financial world is always ready to have answers to things and uh, they make something uh, more substantial than it is. In fact, the, the substance behind the dislocations has come really from government policies. And this irrational, perhaps uh, uh, tyrannical way with which this matter has been managed for good or evil. It's so interesting hearing you talk about the evolution of your collection of participations over time. That I find that really, really interesting because I, I, I'm willing to bet that at no point during that journey did you actually decide to become a resources fund or decide to become this or that. I presume that all that just happened organically as the situation changed, as opportunities presented themselves to you Am I wrong in thinking that, or, or were there particular points in time where you made decisions like that? You're, you're correct. Any more than I don't think we have, we have any, we don't give any credence to these modern notions of allocation around geographic, industrial, or class distinctions, as a lot of people do. It's stupid. Uh, I think of it as utterly stupid. So if you're not going to allocate on account of some preconceived idea of how things ought to be, uh, you have to let life come to you. And from time to time, life brings you a great... It's, it's sort of like having friendships. You know a lot of people, but from time to time, someone becomes your friend. And if you value this friendship, you will nurture it 
you will not want to lose it. And you're not going to look to see how many friends you can acquire in the next month. And this friend could be someone who is not in your same station in life or is completely different from you. Yet you possess a certain appreciation and love and respect for this person. And I, th I think that we live, we cannot know the future. We are really pretending. And in the investment business, most of it, I, I guess not all, the secret is to anticipate what other people are likely to anticipate in the future. So a lot of value investing is, I think this is worth $20, but it's selling for 10. I think one of these days, people, other people are going to see that it's worth $20. So I'll buy it today. So when it gets to $20 or hopefully 30, I'll sell it. I, I'm not so sure how much of that is value other than literally trying to outsmart what other people are anticipating right. or what are they likely to be anticipating. So it's all for the purpose of money making. I mean, no one buys an investment in a, in, in a company because they want to be a great car manufacturer. I, I doubt if there is one, there's any Tesla shareholder who feels extremely proud to be part and own a bit of this incredible automobile making machine. Oh, I think you'd be surprised, but I agree with you. Anyway, carry on. I think, <laughs> I think we'd both be surprised. Everyone owns something because they they want the price to go up so they can make money. Oh, you picked the one stock. You picked the one stock there where I suspect you're very wrong, but that, but the point remains. I use this as an example. I mean, I, I'm not. Uh, you know, I mean, IBM has had lower and lower and lower revenues. Forget profits for years and years and years. Look at the amount of debt they have today versus they had 20 years ago. Look what this company has been hollowed out from within. And you ask yourself, what are these people thinking? Where are they going? They literally hollowed out the company. General Electric, these two companies were once members of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They were looked after. And you go back through history and you see the same thing. In the past years with Radio Corporation, Union Carbide, you know, I can tell you so many companies that have disappeared, gone. But you see others who have survived. They've survived wars, they've survived. And I think that one of the problems that I face is that we have among our firm shareholders from many countries in the world and some from the United States. And um, people's view of the world is generally related to the language they speak, the place they are, their understanding of events. And they see things with the glasses and the context of what they understand. And so it's very difficult for me to relate to a European who looks at the United States on the basis of what he hears in the press his experiences for having visited, uh, say, Disney World or New York City, it's very difficult to tell him that it's not the United States. By equal measure, it's very difficult to tell an American that what you hear and what you see is not what it is on this side of the world. First of all, there's not a thing as Europe other than in a geographic sense. And so these distinctions in cultures and people, habits, are so large that it's not fair to use the United States financial system as a litmus test for the whole financial world.
And I, I think that's a problem endemic to the financial industry and, and particularly in someone in your profession who seeks to sort out thoughts of various folks. By the way, you're doing a great job. You know, Grant, six months ago, I did not know what a podcast was. <laughs> I can believe that. I thought, I thought it was a radio thing that you heard on one of these new radio systems, you know, digital, I don't know what they call. Anyway, so I was, somebody told me about a podcast and I was trying to figure out what radio station it was being played in. And then I, I, I gathered enough humility to go ask someone, what the hell is a podcast? And then I found out about your work and perhaps that of others. And so I've listened to some of your recent, in, in recent months, I think many of your guests have made some considerable contributions to thoughts that are well thought out, illuminating and, and very useful in understanding things. And, and I'm very grateful for what you've done. Well, I, I thank you. And I'm very grateful that, that you're going to be a guest. Not, not only do you know what a podcast is now, but you're going to be a guest on one, which is a huge leap in terms of your progress podcast-wise. Now, and for anyone listening who is sitting there thinking, I hope they're going to talk about Bitcoin, the fact that you didn't know what a podcast was six months ago is precisely the reason that we're not going to talk about Bitcoin, because I suspect the two are similarly um, positioned in your thinking. But what I, what I do want to talk about um, there's a couple more things I want to talk about, and hopefully you, you have more time to indulge me. Um, I'm not bored yet. Excellent. Well, neither am I. And, and listen, you'll get bored long before I will, I promise you. But um, I want to go back to that point in time that you just casually threw into the conversation a few minutes ago about being 93% in cash. Because on the one hand, I find that fascinating because for any traditional money manager, that would be either an impossible thing to do, or if they were somehow able to do it, it would require the kind of conversations both internally and posthumously with their customers that they'd be most uncomfortable with. But I'm willing to bet that you're, at the, the point where you were 93% in cash was before the NASDAQ bubble burst. And so I'm curious as to know how simple a decision that was, whether it was a difficult conversation to have with your shareholders, and then lastly, what went through your mind and the conversations you were having in the months after that where you were sitting in 93% cash, but the market continued to go up. Now, I may have got the time frame wrong, but I suspect you were in cash long before the, the burst happened. Yeah, well... It's a complicated, uh, back those days, I did not, I was not responsible for um, investment company. I was, I was an advisor to individual families. Yeah. And um, they all generally owned the same thing. They all had the same purpose. In terms of making a decision, that was very easy to do. It's akin to finding yourself on a mountain road when fog comes in and you can see five meters out. Instinctively, the right thing to do is get off the road and wait. Now, other cars pass you. Many others pass you, perhaps. But that has to have no bearing on the fact that you have your family in your car or your friends, and by proceeding, 
you are maybe putting them at risk because you cannot have any visibility. So it's a very simple thing to do to say, stop. Just stop. Now, if some one of your passengers said, no, we should go forward, then it's the responsibility of the captain of the ship, the driver, the pilot of the airplane, to say, no, I'm the one responsible for life and limb. If you wish to proceed, get out of the car and join one of those others. And that should be perfectly good. Perfectly. And so there have been many people throughout many years who felt that the investment practice we have is not suitable to them. And we, we actually welcome their departure. Others, we like to participate. Others want to go out. It's quite natural. You deal in a world that is, as I said to you earlier, you're operating with partial knowledge. You must do always in your mind and in your heart and in your conscience what is the right thing to do in your judgment. You, this is not the kind of work you do as a competition with others. I recently had a conversation with a wonderful fellow whom I've known for years, and he says, I've done better than you. Well, that's wonderful. Now, if we measure it only with money, uh, you may have done better than me, but I don't know how to weigh it because I don't know the means that you employed, and I don't know your purpose. So that brings me back to Bitcoin, which I don't want to talk about. But the fact is that it could be the most wonderful thing in the world, Grant. Like if you are taking medicine for some ailment you have in your stomach or something, it may be the most wonderful medicine for you. But that does not by necessity mean that I should be taking it as well. So you know, a lot of people go deal with a security or an idea in the context of money making. If Bitcoin price went to $5,300,533,000 tomorrow, it would not bother me a bit. I will be happy for all those people who seem to be happy to have made all this money. This is great. It still doesn't belong to me. Imagine you promised me. You imagine you had the ability to envision this, to see it. And say, Tony, next year, Bitcoin will be at $150,000 a bit. What is it called? Is there a unit to this thing? There, well, look, there are plenty of people who can see this, and they will be happy to tell you. I, I, still, these promises. I still do not consider it to be suitable for me. And that should be clear to someone any more than the medicine you take is suitable to me. You see, and it has nothing to do with what it is. It has nothing to do with how you measure it. It has nothing to do, I heard your fabulous podcast the other day with these two uh, people who had an opposing view. And it was fascinating. I heard this uh, yesterday, I think, or something. That's all wonderful. This is great. But my, my interest is what is suitable and appropriate to my endeavor. Yeah. So if I choose to say no, it's not because I dismiss other people's thoughts. It's just I feel that this is just not suitable to me. So by the same token, therefore, uh, when you need to make such a decision, you cannot do it in a commercial sense. So much of our world is that if I can earn X percent more than the index, then a lot of money will come to me and I'll have more money to manage. 
Therefore, I will charge more fees. Therefore, I'll become richer. That's how a businessman thinks. And there's nothing wrong with it. The man who sells furniture thinks that if I had uh, if I had more customers, I would make more furniture and I would make more profits. That's legitimate. That's not what I do. And so the size of our assets has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with how I feel about anything. Because if they were to double, I don't think they'll pay me any more money. No one is going to, the firm is going to earn more money by doubling our assets. So I have no incentive for external growth. Therefore, I'm completely uninterested in anything of a competitive nature, particularly the nature of competition that exists where you measure your returns according to some arbitrary index, an arbitrary money, in fact, without giving due notice to the means that you've used to employ the capital over which you have responsibility. And so it was an easy decision, and it's always an easy decision. These are not difficult decisions to make. I know, knowing as I do, that, that that's the case, but it's, it's fascinating. I don't think you realize how difficult a decision that is for 99% of the people, not just in this industry, uh, who are practitioners, but also for people that have invested their savings. You know, the idea of being in cash and this fear of missing out is, is a very real phenomenon that human beings struggle with mightily. Indeed. I, I think that particularly now, where it's become evident to just about everyone that cash in the bank is nothing more than Bitcoin that is not going up. Right, right. It's, well, other, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a virtual money. It's really, frankly, it isn't even an asset. It's a liability of the bank. Therefore, it's a liability. Well, this, this brings me on to something that I really do want to talk to you about. This, this, and you mentioned the V word there. And, and the word virtual is something that you can't escape these days. Everything is virtual. Bitcoin is a virtual currency. We live in a virtual world. For someone who's spent a, a, a lifetime, a career, evaluating physical businesses, evaluating physical things, what do you make of this, of this virtual existence of ours? What, what does, that, does that send any broader signals to you? No, not really. i tell you, first of all, I think uh, virtual life has replaced virtue. Yes. Uh, an all world, an all world, really. Uh, uh, Nassim Taleb wrote once that virtue is what you do when no one is watching. And that was a defining characteristic of our world some generations ago. Today, the word has even disappeared from the vocabulary and it's been replaced by a virtual life, virtual friendships, virtual food, virtual money, virtual assets. So does it surprise me? No. One of the, th I spend a lot of time trying to understand why. What is the underlying factors that have contributed to this uh, phenomenon? And clearly this is not the kind of subject on which we can dwell, but it, it becomes very important to understand the antecedents of these of this trends. Because ultimately, you must come to judgment as to the impact their natural consequences will have on your life, and perhaps those that life of your children, grandchildren, 
the impact it will have on property, and so forth. And I think without delving into the antecedents and factors that have contributed to our modern world and how people view things, we can't really understand that because I'm not so sure these things are temporary. And I'm not so sure what factors are likely to arrest their further uh, development. I'll, I'll give you an idea, which is much more than just, it's in the same context of, uh, of something being virtual. This whole notion of ESG, uh, that's environmental uh, sustainability and governance. Now, our ancestors did not know any of these words. You know, the, the, the word sustainability in itself means nothing. No one knows exactly what it is. And yet people, every company has somebody on their staff that puts together reports about their sustainability. But how do you become more sustainable? I have this notion that at one time people were responsible. And responsibility has been replaced with sustainability. But but the thing is that you can you know if you have a problem you have to say i'm irresponsible where if you're dealing with sustainability well, grant is not sustainable how do i know you are not sustainable or this company is not sustainable this is really a disease that has taken place on in our world and today of course there are funds that are dedicated to this esg investing because people want it they feel good deep inside that they're yeah. doing something for the environment well, the environment is a tyrannical, the environmentalist kind of thing is a tyrannical form of greater government control, greater you know, growth in, in central planning, if you may. This idea of governance. You know, people, uh, listed companies now have to, have to comply with silly, stupid, idiotic rules to justify issues and, and uh, decisions, etc., that all come as to the proper governance. You know, when the companies had owners, they didn't have to have this. But today, the absence of owners in listed companies has resulted in completely chaotic conditions where you have not just merely managers, but you have managers whose interest is largely defined as self-interest. And so they're running, they are, and they are, you have tourists who are managers and you have tourists who are shareholders. And that's all become possible because of the public markets and the growth and financial activity. And so how do you tell someone to be responsible? Well, it's something, if your mother hasn't taught you that, there's no book that will tell you that. Oh, really, think about it, right? How do you teach someone to think about his actions in connection with how they affect other people, their family, their neighbors, their society, their country, their customers, their suppliers, etc. And you see, the, you, we are thinking, these are all are symptoms to a much larger problem whose uh, genesis may even be even more strange. I, we're not going to go in there, but I think our society is going through these incredible convulsions. And we have acquired a vocabulary that our grandparents and our, our forefathers never had. And somehow they've managed to survive all kinds of pestilence and war and 
inflations and confiscations and all sorts of trouble throughout the centuries without knowing about the virtue of sustainability. This is, these are all virtual ideas that have no bearing really on what is real, what is enduring, what is substantive, what is responsible, and so forth. And I don't really see any or one of these things as hanging on its own. I see this as part and parcel of a society that is coming unglued. And so I'm sorry to be so broad. Uh, no, no, no. I, 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 I think that I think that point is is what I is what I was getting to is is this embrace this willing embrace of everything virtual by so many people speaks to me of exactly that it's it's a loss of interest it's a loss of faith in the real and the hope that the virtual can provide either a distraction or or a better world to the one in which people are being forced to inhabit at the moment uh, it, it, I mean, clearly this um, so-called social media, which neither media nor is it social, has contributed to this cacophony of ideas by pretending it was a medium of exchange of ideas, where in fact nothing of the sort happens there. I don't know, but you are on Twitter, so you should know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's very true. So, Tony, all, all of this brings me around to something that I wanted to talk more with you about, and that's the subject of gold, because it came up in our first interview. We talked about it a little bit there. But, but I am curious, having spoken to you about this privately num a number of times, I am curious as to, to, to let people understand how you think about gold, what you think is important about gold, and just kind of give the framework within which gold forms a part of your portfolio. Uh, Grant, I respect you very much, but the matter has been talked about so many times by so many people far, far wiser than my. I think that by now, anyone who has the mild curiosity to understand has understood. The fact is that different people approach different things in life for different reasons. For example, with respect to gold, there are many folks out there who feel that, well, I will own gold as an insurance policy. Therefore, I will own, it will go up if something were to go down. Therefore, I will buy an ETF like GLD or at one time there was GLD, now there are hundreds of them. Who, whose price is likely to reflect any changes in the underlying price of the metal. Other people say, no, what I want to do is I want to buy some gold coins, like some one-ounce coins, and hide them in my backyard in a steel box in case something happens. Different people have different motivations. Some people will put, will put uh, a few dollars, others a little bit more, and there are others yet who have all their liquid assets today are in some kind of a gold instrument of some kind. There's a cacophony of ideas out there about what gold is or isn't. 
I remember very clearly the year was 1998. And I was, I had the opportunity to go to the, to Denver, where it was the Denver Gold Show at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, a lot of producers came in with their staff and each one of them had like half an hour to make a presentation. And I'll never forget that there were more producers and other staff than there were members of the audience attending. In fact, no one, and I mean no one, was interested in gold. There was John Embry from Canada. There was John Hathaway. There was my friend Doug Pollitt. A few others whose name I cannot recall this very moment, but very few of us were on the audience side, on the investment side. And back then, the reason that I became attracted to it is because I was a shareholder at the time in a company called Franco Nevada, which was before the current version of it. It was part of Euro Franco Nevada, where two different companies in different fields. But And I became fascinated with their income streams and the thing. I did not know much about the subject. But I did know that here was an asset that was completely uninteresting and unloved by many people. Now, there were many other people who thought of it as, uh, many people think of it as being money. Other people think it's not money. Some people think of it as this, some people think of it the other. It's the kind of subject that, that elicits religious kind of sentiment on the part of many people. Uh, the vast majority of the world, institutional and otherwise, doesn't really care for it. Many people have said that, well, we don't know what the value of it is because we cannot, doesn't have cash flows. Those very, very same people, of course, today, they buy Bitcoin because they know what the cash flows are. I'm joking. But nonetheless, other people said it's a relic of times gone by. Other people, there's so many voices. Needless to say, as I've shared with you in the past, at the time, I did not see gold uh, the same way, except for some year or so later when I realized that um, it was either mispriced or it was going out of business. Mm -hmm. Think think of something that is selling at a price which either says the company is going out of business or is cheap. I mean, really cheap. And I came to the conclusion that it was really cheap. But where the first boom came was not in the price of gold, but in the price of the large uh, mining companies who were completely leveraged to the price. And they were, and rightfully so, frankly. And with the fortune that we made on that, we sold that and we bought shares, and we bought literally shares in GLD. And we're talking about now not a few shares. I think it was at the time, the years 2004. Mm-hmm about, uh, I don't know, maybe $50 million worth, 60, I'm not sure, something like that at the time. And then the prospectus of the GLD said that you could actually convert your shares in GLD to physical metal, provided that you meet these conditions, which Mm -hmm. were readily stated in their offering memorandum. So about... uh, uh, but a month or two later, I proceeded to do precisely that, only to find out that GLD had absolutely no intention of any kind 
of giving me physical metal in exchange for the shares. And I mean, no intention, none. That's another story for another day. But the fact is that we sold all the shares of GLD and bought physical metal in standard bar forms. And back those days, it was not for the purpose of becoming rich or becoming, I saw it literally as a wonderful asset that was still mispriced. I saw it as a, a means by which I can retain an element of liquidity that I can use to em- employ elsewhere. And I saw it as a means of providing an element of independence from, for me, this is so early on, outside of the bank, outside of dealing with financial instruments, treasury bills, because where, where I'd not have gold, I would have treasury bills, commercial paper and the like. But I felt that by owning these instruments, I really have exposure to the financial system And I felt that all those instruments were really actually liabilities of the underlying issuer rather than an asset which, notwithstanding its volatility, possesses intrinsic elements of substance which I find to be valuable. So I didn't really delve into this end-of-the-world kind of scenario that has been used. Now, back those days, of course... uh, they were not most of the people that are here today, they didn't exist back then. And as the price of gold kept increasing over the years, say from 2002 to 2010, 11, or 12 or so, more and more people saw the increase in prices as an opportunity to engage in a business yeah. by which they would sell it. And there's only two ways to sell anything. There are only two ways to sell anything to someone who doesn't actually need it to survive. One is to sell it by virtue of making him fear, fearful. And the other one is to sell it, uh, telling him, uh, you know, um, engendering a sense of greed. There's no other way. Those who've tried another way have had to deal with having to explain a lot of things, having to have the customer learn a few things, which most people are not really hardly interested in doing. You know, so there's no question of the fact that I've received a great deal of laughter, both in my face and off my face over this, particularly after I refused to sell. Well, we sold some gold, but we didn't sell most of it by 2013, 12, whenever it hit the high point. And of course, as a result of that, our total return for the preceding seven years, which was substantial, you know, had to be lowered somewhat. But but it was a necessary part of the consolidation process. Something that goes up really fast in price, eventually enters into a period of some people are selling it, some people are rethinking, etc. This did not matter to me at all. Some of the people who were part of the firm left. We have shareholders who have urged me to sell everything we have and buy gold and nothing else. And we have others who said, sell the gold and, and buy some of this beautiful stuff that you own. And so forth. I mean, there are a lot of voices. And people are ready to give you their opinion, whether you ask them or not. Because they feel this incredible religious experience when it comes to certain things. Now, they would not have this same religious experience had you invested in, say, 
British American tobacco or a Serenox or well, in the former, I guess they would because they think it's non. Uh, it's yeah, not yeah. But yeah. anyway, the point is that when it comes to certain things, uh, people embrace certain ideas for reasons that they're known only to them, I suppose. But and they're very vehement in their views, and they feel there is one way, and your their way is better, and this and that. Well. The fact is that you kind of learn to ignore these things. That you really ignore the noise that goes with it. Because if you were to have an opinion, assuming I asked you for it, then it would be very helpful if you give me your reasoning behind it. Yeah. Because your reasoning will lead me to think whether or not it applies to my circumstances and it's suitable for me, etc. And there's no secret today, we do own a great deal of physical gold. We don't own this ETF metal because an ETF certificate is a security. It's not gold at all. It has nothing to do with the two matters. It's sort of like I once said, if you own cattle futures, you're not a farmer. You can only own, if you don't own actual cows, you're not a farmer. And today, you know, I mean, Look, um, I've met a number of people in my life who forecasted gold going to $300 or it was at 1200 it will go to 800 It was at 1500 it will go to 25000 etc. People don't know. No one really knows. People like to tell things only because you ask them, not that then because they know. We don't know. <laughs> we really don't know. It could go anywhere. It could go anywhere tomorrow or down or up. It makes no difference. What is fascinating about gold is that most of the dealing in gold does not take place in the actual metal. It takes place on the futures exchanges and so forth, etc. And this is not the case with other things in life. And so the price of it from day to day and from moment to moment is distorted for reasons that have nothing to do with with a real marketplace for it. Yeah. These distortions give you an opportunity to oftentimes rethink your situation because the more often you look at something, um, the more often you get to second guess the reason that you own it. The more often you look at price, the more often you think about selling it. But as I said to you at some point, price is only important when you buy. In fact, it's most important when you buy. And it's important when you sell. In the meantime, assuming you own it for reasons that have nothing to do with price, price doesn't make a difference. Yeah, I agree. So the important point, for, and I'm not suggesting this is true for everyone, I have never tried to convert anyone to any religion. I've never tried to give, I've never given hot tips to anyone. I've never tried to sell anyone to anything. In fact, I don't know how to sell anything. But I feel that for me and for those people who are on my bus, gold represents today about roughly 38% of our capital. In addition to that, between other producers, a bit, we have another stake in silver and another stake in platinum, which are new. This came about last March. But we have also stakes in producers of gold, not very many, two or three. Between all that, all that together, 
It's about half our capital, a little bit less. That means the rest of it is not in cash, but is in these permanent participations of things that are not we're not willing to sell. Yeah. So that means that gold serves as a a sort of treasure. It serves for us as a reserve, as the um, as the foundation of the health of the organization. And you know, if to look at it every day because. Well, once in a while, we have to make computations as to the net book value of the company, et cetera, and you have to mark things to market. But marking things to market does not really mark the value you uh, embed in the reasoning for owning this investment to market. It means nothing. It truly means nothing. We've had, I've had many times in my life a situation where I owned a, a copper stock of a company who, despite the fact the company was prospering, the sales price stayed stuck somewhere. And the reason it stayed stuck because no one promoted it. And as you know, people buy things. People, the securities are sold, they're never bought. So the more people we have promoting something, the more people buy it, and the more, of course, visible it becomes, etc. So it didn't bother me at all. I knew un- underlying all that there was a substance as a business I did not know when it will manifest itself. People talk about monetizing something. I'm not sure I've ever used that word myself. It's probably the first time I've ever uttered this word. (laughs) Um, People think about monetizing something. Well, you monetize something uh, the same way way you monetize your wife's wedding ring when times are tough. Or perhaps something valuable you possess because you cannot meet payroll or you cannot pay the rent. When you own something valuable, whose purpose is honorable and whose uh, the reason that you own it is um, has a long-term view, sitting by the exit doesn't really mean anything. The fact that whether it's liquid or not and all that, but that's really those things are circumstantial. I I feel that. Uh, times come from time to time when the market misprices a good. Even in these distorted markets of ours, from time to time, maybe once a year, maybe twice, something will come up and you will say, oh, wow, this is really truly mispriced. And so now I can dip into our reserve and say, I'm going to take 500 kilos of gold or 200 kilos or 100 or and I'm gonna sell it in the marketplace and I'm gonna get some paper money with which to buy something else that I consider more important. Think about the buying and selling of investments or securities as you would buy and sell any good. When you go to a restaurant or if you go to the store and buy a pair of trousers, in essence, you are saying that I value the trousers more than I value the money in my pocket. The purveyor of the trousers values your money more than he values the trousers. And thus you have an exchange. And to the extent that exchange is voluntary and free of you know, imposition by the parties, that's what makes our market system work so well. And so currently I value our goal more than I value owning shares in some of the other things that are apparently are going up. And now this situation might change because in the future, there may come a situation where there is something out there that I value more than that. But owning gold is sort of like being my, our own bank. Yeah. 
we have very, very little in terms of deposits in banks and cash because we only have it for liquidity purposes of day-to-day purposes. And so you see the ownership of gold in and of itself does not tell you anything. But within the context of the purpose of the entire thing, it allows you to come to judgment as to the substance that is embedded in and if you come to the same conclusion if you looked at every one of these components, because yeah. we have components that are large, we have an equity participation in one case, which is 6%. And we have another one that is 0.3%. Yeah. So concentration has to do with the timing, has to do with opportunism, has to do with how much we know, what we wish. To, everything fits a particular purpose. So you cannot see, you cannot say, well, you own too much gold and you are not related, correlated, and all that. That's, that's not how we think. And that's not how a real owner of capital ought to think. But of course, people are free to do what they think is in their best interest appropriate and within the context of their judgment as to what they consider to be important and for what reason. You, 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 there, there was one other key scenario that you missed out, which is the time when you have money in your hand and you don't have any trousers and you need trousers. And that, and that point, you have to give up your money for those trousers because you need them. I can't think of a particular reason why that scenario might play out, but indulge me anyway. You know, you know I mean, Grant, recently, uh, in, uh, a year or two ago, I lost my father-in-law. He passed away at age 95, I think. And um, the reason I mention it is it's, it's in, instructive in that the man was a carpenter. And on a carpenter's income, he reared four children. He had a house that was paid for. He had savings. They went on holidays. They had, the children went to university. They ate well. They dressed well on a carpenter's income. I ask you today whether you know any possibility that a carpenter nowadays could do that. Now, this is starting, I suppose, in the 1950s. Yeah, my my feeling is that people do not understand the nature, the extreme theft that masquerades as inflation, and I'm not talking about inflation of goods on the streets, as much as the inflation to do with money. When you reduce the purchasing power of money, you change the nature of society. Imagine, imagine the consequences, the social consequences, the ethical consequences that come from a family that cannot make ends meet, even having an honorable profession like a carpenter. Imagine, imagine the consequences. Yeah. And this is why it's, it's very, very important to consider. I mean, people are talking about yesterday, I heard you speak at another venue somewhere a few days ago about inflation. And I assume you were talking about price inflation, not asset inflation. Mm-hmm. And not commodities inflation and not real estate inflation, right? Even at two percent, I mean, this 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 folks will be delighted for interest rate to price inflation, assuming it's even even adequately computed, which is not. To go to two percent, three percent, two percent inflation, they consider wonderful. Two percent inflation compound two percent over thirty years, and I'll show you what the decrease in the purchasing power of money is. These are only people who have an understanding of history or they've experienced it themselves or through their parents have a proper perspective as to the 
world in which we live with respect to the value of purchasing power of one's earnings. And so today, it's actually very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do, however, within the context of the practice with which we have been used over the last 30 years. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So you, if, if you want me to, if you want me to tell you that gold is going to whatever price level, I'm not going to because I don't. I have no interest in that. I, I like you. I don't care about the price of gold. It just it doesn't but, really but interest me. But on the other hand, gold is a tool. It's not an end to all means. Um, I, 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 I very much like the entrepreneurial and constructive and real, honest activity that takes place in industry today. It largely goes unheralded. Great entrepreneurs are unheralded because they're not on Twitter, they're not on Facebook, and no one promotes their shares. They are companies sub $2 billion in market cap that no one follows. No one. And in fact, there are many that BlackRock and others cannot go into. They cannot buy them because they are tightly held or they just... And this is an environment in which I find an enormous amount of substance, particularly in this side of the Atlantic. And so I think that Real, genuine wealth creation is uh, far more important than owning gold. The key important thing is defining what is really genuine to start with, what is enduring, and what is independent of outside factors, whether it's one's own stupidity or the government. I'm sorry if I repeat myself. <laughs> so in impact, impacting the substance of what one has worked for. Because, you know, when you're 30 years old and you have a little money in your pocket and you make you do something stupid, you say, okay, I've learned my lesson now, I will not do it again. But when you are 60 or 65 and you have accumulated something, whether this is a factory or whether it's a store or whether it's a sewing machine or a bank account, you, you have much more concern about the idea of not being able to, ever been able to replace yeah. that that you have worked very hard for, particularly after tax. So I see gold in that perspective as a tool and as a means to um, composition and, and a purpose rather than as an end of itself. Well, I mean, you, you, you said that the, um, the GLD story was one for another day, but I don't know if I can persuade you to at least put a little bit more flesh on those bones simply because there will be plenty of people listening to this who own GLD in the full and secure belief that they do own gold and if push came to shove, they could exchange it for physical gold and everything would be right in the world and they would have that which they believe they purchased. So can you, can you flesh out that story just a little bit more for us so we can understand the process? Well, I, I, I would rather not speak about this organization specifically because their no. rules have changed. I have not seen their offering memorandum recently. I, I don't know what's there today. But at the time, the memorandum said that if um, they had some special relationships with certain banks, and if you, through those banks, they could exchange certain lots. And I remember their lot was so many ounces of, or so many shares can be converted into physical metal, uh, given certain conditions. And uh, so I went about it the right way. I, we read the memorandum, we, we made an application, we said we meet those conditions, and said so we have an account with this organization that you've just named here. 
And they says, well, no, 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 this account has to be with this organization in New York, not in Switzerland. I said, fine, we can set up an account there. So I picked up the phone and we set up an account with the same organization in the New York branch. Okay, now we have an account here. And this went on and on and on for months. Um, one obstacle after the other. There was nothing ever was clear. The conversations were not really the kind of conversations that one is expecting to have with a financial institution. Really, I mean, frankly, nowadays, no one really cares about the customer. That's normal. But you'd expect at least some level of courtesy. So I, I came to the conclusion that they were completely uninterested. Um, I went so far as to hire a law firm to get an opinion in New York. And they got a copy of this uh, offering memorandum and they read it in their ability to understand legal nuances. And uh, they wrote a letter or two, but nothing ever happened. So I came to the conclusion that they were under, they, they would never really fulfill these terms because they are. So the easy thing for me to do was sell it. It was much, much easier than dwell on the matter. And so I, I think that um, these kind of instruments play a role, assuming you want to make money. And maybe you will, and maybe you won't. But these instruments have nothing to do with the ownership of gold. These securities are really merely claims on what they have or subject to the disclosures they choose to make and a whole lot of nuances they're in. I mean, things are really complicated today in our world because oftentimes you even read annual accounts. You read uh, memorandums for offerings, etc., and you get to this impression that someone is trying to hide something by using the kind of language that is not clear. When, when I see language that is not clear, I always think that someone is not really quite telling all that there is to say. And you know, today, in many cases, I cannot say in most, most annual reports are written by lawyers. Yeah. Now, that, that should worry and concern people. Because in our company, we write the annual reports ourselves. In fact, we don't even have lawyers review them. I think that it's, it's, we have lost this idea of accountability and we hide behind a system of laws and regulations that ostensibly make us feel good that somehow somebody in the government is protecting us. Where in essence, what it has done, it has robbed us of our ability to discern right from wrong. It has taken away our ability to be skeptical about things. And so the average man does not belong in the financial markets. He, he, never, he never has. But by, by giving the appearance, by giving the, the smell that you too can become rich only if you buy shares in this fund or do this or do the other, buy this insurance policy, etc. And by the way, this is regulated by the government. Well, I, I've, I don't know of anything that the government does that is right or correct or fine or, or well done. Why would they regulate things any better? But the fact is that man has been given the, has lost his sense of skepticism and his ability for discernment. He's, he doesn't really know what to think or how to think about things, except that he's either fearful or he's greedy. And that has led him into certain situations. And you cannot help him, neither can I. 
uh, because in, in the, throughout history, most people in times of disaster have really vanished, their wealth or their lives, etc. It takes a great deal of thinking to understand what's what. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Tony, I think in, in some ways it's actually even worse than that because today being skeptical um, is is seen as a very bad trait and people will abuse you for being a skeptic and for not just instantly taking whatever the particular item under promotion is at face value. If you're skeptical about anything, and, I, and I've noticed this with Bitcoin, um, if you're skeptical, that is a terrible thing rather than something to be applauded. Well, Descartes said that skepticism is the nature of genius. And in fact, I think without skepticism, nothing that we enjoy today would have ever been accomplished. We'd still be living in caves. Right. Yeah? <laughs> and the fact that it isn't just knowledge. I think uh, years ago, I, I worked briefly with uh, Dylan Grice. He, I remember something he, he was quoting from, I don't remember his name, an American physicist who lives... Mr. Feynman, perhaps? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, he liked uh, Feynman, yes. But he was quoting something extraordinary. He said that the idea of knowing something is not so easy. It's hard. Most of what people think they know is because they actually read it somewhere or they heard it somewhere, they saw it on television, someone told them, blah, blah, blah. That's not knowing. Knowing is actually quite hard. And Dylan would make a big case of this matter, and he's absolutely correct on this. But if you take it a step further, even if you actually know something, the idea of that adding to your overall understanding is another matter. And the idea of this understanding being useful in making judgments about your circumstances or that of others is even a third matter. So it's not enough to know, because you know well that in the financial industry, at least, you're surrounded by extremely intelligent folks. I mean, very, very intelligent people. Yeah. And nowadays, intelligent folks go to finance rather than going to engineering or, or science or et cetera. And so you, you have very intelligent people who know mathematics, who know physics, who know, you know, everything you... But their intelligence alone, necessary as it is, is insufficient to come to judgment about things, both for themselves or that of others, and their application. Think about this for a, for a moment. A medical doctor... A medical doctor, I mean, if you are very, very intelligent, you too can look at medical books. If I left you alone for, say, 10 years, and I gave you 20 medical books, and all you had to do is read them, you will learn a lot about medicine, but you will not be a medical doctor. Not because someone has not conferred on you a degree, but you would not have acquired the judgment that goes with being a medical doctor. You go to the doctor and say, I have this symptom. And then he asks you, ah, do you also have that? Do you also have that? You don't go to the doctor and say, uh, listen, my stomach hurts. I think I have uh, such and such. Can you please prescribe me this drug? I mean, no medical doctor with worth anything would do that for you. But he has the ability to make judgments. And that's really 
really what matters, really, because it's just not one thing. It, 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 it's, and that ability has nothing to do with just merely being intelligent or knowing a lot of things. It's a matter of practice, and that's why it's, the medical thing is called the practice, because you constantly make more and more and more judgments. And you don't stop doing that. And sometimes you make some errors, which is natural. And in financial industry, you can, you can feel them because they have to do with numbers. And, but I think that you cannot see things outside of the context of something greater. And that's very difficult to do. Uh, for someone who wants to become rich quick. Yes, exactly right. Tony, you know, we, we started off this conversation talking about um, a financial practice. We've ended up talking about a medical practice and and what has happened in between has been the most wonderful bus journey. When I got on the bus today, I didn't really know where it was going. Um, but rest assured, I will stay on your particular bus as long as you'll let me. And wherever you may take me is fine with me. I just, I cannot thank you enough for spending all this time with me and, and sharing your thoughts with an audience that I know these, these sentiments of yours, these ideas of yours will resonate simply because they are, there's such a rarity and such a scarcity in today's world. So, so on behalf of everybody listening, you have my sincere thanks for giving us this time well thank you for your indulgence too i wish you very well in your new endeavor this is this is the part where ordinarily i ask people to let others know where they can find them on twitter the beauty of that is i know that with you that is completely unnecessary yeah i mean i i have i have nothing to give or sell so i i'm not on twitter or anything well, Tony, listen, you, you've, you've given plenty. You haven't sold anything, but you've given us plenty. So again, thank you so much. And I look forward to uh, seeing you in person again as soon as borders of various countries allow. I look forward to that too. Thank you. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.